Our second reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. What, didn't, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The word of the Lord. We live in the West, and in the West we have a culture of skepticism and doubt, it's a prove-it culture. And look, if you've grown up in the West, if this is where you've lived your whole life, it's hard not to have that prove-it skeptical side to you because we are built on hundreds of years of the Enlightenment with its reasoning and scientific method. And basically, if it cannot be observed or proven, it must not be true. And so that's built into all of us just by growing up in this culture. And so we are a culture, by and large, who values skepticism especially in, in academic places or educated places like D.C. and Northern Virginia, where we want to be the sort of people who can't be fooled. And so we are suspicious and cynical, and we tend to be doubters in general. And so if you talk to a skeptic, and some of you in here might be skeptical about the whole Jesus thing, and if I said, do you believe in Jesus, the response of a good skeptic would be, you cannot prove, you cannot prove that Jesus is Savior and God. You can't even prove that he did any of the things he, you guys claim he did, and certainly not that he rose from the dead. But that view that challenges whether you can prove that Jesus is God is a view that says that the scientific method is the only way to know if something is true. And that in and of itself is an unprovable truth claim. You can't prove that the scientific method and observable biological realities are the only thing that determine what is true. 
As an example, um, what's the basis for saying that there's such a thing as love? Or that life has meaning? Many people who are doubters and skeptics of the whole Jesus thing would still say love and romance, meaning, beauty, all these things are there. But they have no basis for that. You can't actually prove it scientifically that there's such a thing as love. It's rather something you think and feel, which basically means that you, whatever you think, reason, and feel, is the final arbiter of what is true. And that, in and of itself, is an unprovable assumption. What I mean is this. Everyone is a believer. Everyone is a believer in something. The question is, in what do you believe? Everyone bases their life on unprovable assumptions. That's their foundation. We all have them. The real question is, in what do you believe? And the problem with Christianity is that Jesus is very offensive. He even says it himself. Well, he says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He's assuming some of you are going to be offended by him. In fact, most of the people that have ever existed have been offended by Jesus. Years ago, when I was a kid, late elementary school, if we wanted to um, say something rude to somebody, we just said it. We just said a cut down something mean, and then a, a number of years after that, I was a youth minister in my early ministry days, and I found that middle school girls were the meanest of all. They would tell me exactly what they were thinking about me at any moment. I was scared of them. But somehow over the past 15 years, the anti-bullying movement has had an effect. And so the result was, at least for my kids when they were younger, sort of late elementary school age and early middle school, is that they wouldn't just say a rude thing, they would preface it with a, no offense, but. (laughs) And so the phrase was very common in our house and other places, hey, no offense, but dinner tonight was terrible. No offense, but your sermon was boring. No offense is taken. I mean, the whole thing of no offense, I I tried to explain it, is by starting a sentence with no offense but, I know that you're going to offend me. You're going to say something rude, mean, that you should just hold on to. It's like it was was the the card to, to allow you to do whatever you wanted, you know? Get out of jail free, say whatever you want. You said no offense. When Jesus says, blessed are those who are not offended by me, he doesn't mean that he's gonna go around making you feel bad, say rude things to you. The phrase, the word group, comes from a Greek word that we get our English translation, our English word scandalize. Jesus is saying, blessed are you if you are not scandalized by me. It literally means something you trip over or stumble over. Matthew, the gospel writer, uses the term a lot because it's an idea that he recognizes as pretty common for people. And when he's defining it, it basically means to, to something that causes you to fall away from God, causes you to sin and reject God, causes you to lose faith, to be offended. Jesus offends everyone. There's not a culture on earth that has not been offended by Jesus. You know, in the West, in the West we say, we, we, people, if you just, you know, like some of you who are doubter skeptics, but if you left this, this room right here, where many of you buy into the whole Jesus thing, if you left this room, most people would still say Jesus was a good moral teacher. 
You know, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, kind of Jesus. And in the West, we like how Jesus cared for the sick and the poor. And we like his, his call to forgiveness and turning the other cheek. That's something we value in the West. But when it comes to what Jesus teaches about morality, especially sexuality, or when Jesus claims to be the only way, it's actually unthinkable for many of us. It's completely offensive. But you know what? If, if instead of being in the West, you had grown up and lived your whole life in the Middle East, if you'd grown up your whole life in the Middle East, you would have no problem with Jesus' moral teaching. Nor would you have a, claim, a, a problem with the claim that, that there's only one way. Now, as, as a Middle Easterner, you might disagree that Jesus is the only way, but the, that there's only one way makes total sense to you. But the idea of turning the other cheek or forgiving your enemies, in an honor culture, that is completely humiliating and shameful and unthinkable. It is an offensive idea. You go to any traditional culture and the idea of being saved by grace through faith is offensive because it's, it's your birth order, whether you're of a high caste or not, or it's your goodness, your moral and religious goodness. It's karma. Grace that anyone can get in just by believing, that is offensive to a traditional culture. Everyone is offended by Jesus. If you are not, and if you claim to be a Christian and are not regularly challenged, offended in that way by Jesus, you probably don't get him. You're not digging deep enough. Even John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, the saint, was offended by Jesus. In chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, we just had it read, we get John the Baptist sending some of his disciples to Jesus We read this, now when John heard in prison, John was in prison, about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Underneath of John's question are doubts. Now, if if those of you who don't know, kind of haven't memorized all the Bible stories, John was John the Baptist. He had preceded Jesus going around in Galilee, and he was in the Jordan River, out in the wilderness, the Jordan River, and he was baptizing people. So he was John the baptizer, John the Baptist. But he was preaching as a prophet. John was known as a prophet who would preach, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Basically, judgment is coming, God is coming, judgment is coming, so repent and be baptized. And he went on to prophesy about the coming Messiah. He says, I baptize you with water, but the one coming after me is gonna baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And that idea of fire basically means judgment is coming. He will come with power and judgment. So when John asks, are you the one? John in prison asks, are you the one? The part of his doubts are built up on the expectations he has on what the Messiah is supposed to be. He assumes that when the Messiah comes, justice will come. And justice means the righting of all wrongs. And justice means God will reign and the evil people will not anymore. 
And the problem is, this isn't happening in John's view. John is in prison. Now, the background of the story was that he was very truthful and offended the king, King Herod, the sort of puppet king who claimed to be Jewish, religious, but really just kind of broke the law. He was offended, and his wife, who he had stolen from his brother, killed him, had him thrown in prison. Prison is not a nice place, okay? And those of you who have visited prison, maybe even have been in one, know that it is a awful place. It is a hopeless place. It is a dead-end place. Prisons are very spiritually dark, even in America, where they are relatively, comparatively, historically very nice. But this is an ancient prison, which basically means a dungeon. He might have been without light, chained up. You usually didn't get food unless you had approved guests bring you food. A horrible, miserable existence with, with no appeal to justice, no, no reason, no, no expectation or hope of any way of getting out ever. And never knowing if today was your last day when you were going to be executed. It was a horror, a horrible thing to experience, basically. So there he is suffering horribly. And it makes sense that he doubts, right? If you have suffered, you know that doubts come. If you're suffering with health, loss, failures in life, it's hard not to doubt that God is good, that he's there. John asks, if you are the Messiah, why am I in prison and Herod is still on the throne? Why are you casting out demons? Why don't you cast out the Romans? Didn't you come to right all wrongs? I am dying here in this dungeon. You know, one of the good things about uh, some of John's doubts is that it reminds us that it's okay to doubt ourselves. It's not a moral or spiritual failure if you have doubts. And look, I know that some of you have been around Christian circles or tried them out where basically if you're claiming to be a Christian and you have any doubts that God's going to come through or that God's good or that Jesus is Lord or if you have any struggles with some of these things, it's like, no, 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 you can't say that. Shh, you must believe. Look, here, as long as I'm the pastor, it's okay to doubt. It's okay to be in a small group and say, I don't get this. It's okay to say, I have a hard time with Jesus claiming to be the only way. It's okay because it's real. It's a real wrestling. And that's what God wants. He wants you to come real. So if you are somebody who struggles with doubts, keep going to Jesus. Do what John did. Go to Jesus. Well, he tried to. And know that you can cry out with the Psalms, God, where are you? I don't understand. Are you the one? But if you go to Jesus, also expect to be offended. Especially if you're dealing with sufferings or disappointments in life, he may not answer you in the way that you want. Or the way you assume he should answer you. But Jesus does answer John, and it's not in the way that he expected. Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you see. 
and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. So Jesus does not condemn John. Hey, why do you doubt? Don't you know who I am? Nor does he say, yes, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah. Go tell him I am the Christ. If he, if he was that blatant with it, he would have brought down all the powers of Herod and Rome and the religious leaders too soon. So instead, he uses allusions that he knows John would have understood, allusions to Isaiah, the great prophet that he anticipated the kingdom, that he anticipated the Messiah. Isaiah is filled with all of these hopes, 700 years before Jesus, of justice and shalom, that one day Israel, who had been cast into exile, would return home, that they would become God's nation once again, and judgment would be brought on the pagan nations. Justice would come, righting of wrongs, and shalom, wholeness, flourishing, peace. God's presence would come and bring hope and freedom and healing and life. And so Jesus is actually, uh, most commentators say, pointing to several different Isaiah allusions, but one of them very specifically is Isaiah 61, where the, the prophet says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord, this is the, the Messiah speaking through um, Isaiah, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is saying, I am doing that even now. And then he goes on to talk about in, uh, in chapter 35, uh, another one that he's alluding to is, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. When God comes with vengeance, <laughs> when God comes to bring justice, these things will happen. The lame, the poor, the weak, All of this has already been detailed in Matthew. In Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus proclaims good news to the poor. In Matthew 8 and 9, which we looked at last week, Jesus' miracles and healing bring about the Isaiah 35 hopes. You know, Jesus' ministry was not going around Galilee telling people how to get saved. It was proclaiming the good news of God's presence in himself. God is here. And ushering in the kingdom of God. And when the kingdom of God comes, Jesus is saying, it will undo the effects of the fall. Not all of you have read it, but C.S. Lewis wrote that kid's book, uh, The Chronicles of Narnia, and the most famous one is The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. In The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, these children, these English children, enter through a wardrobe into a magical land called Narnia. But when they enter there, it is frozen and snowy, and they, they get an explanation of why it's frozen and snowy. It's because a witch has cast a spell, a curse, upon Narnia. And it is always winter, but never Christmas. And it's because the king, Aslan, has not been around for eons. But all of a sudden, Winter begins to melt. Flowers begin to burst forth. Leaves on the trees because Aslan has arrived in Narnia. Everywhere he goes, the frozen curse melts. 
This is what Jesus is saying to John. Everywhere I go, the curse is melting. The blind, the leper, the dead, and the gospel is proclaimed to the poor. You know, if you read through the Gospels and Jesus' interaction with people, what you find is it's most often the poor and the sick, the outcast and the sinner who experience Jesus, his power, his good news. Jesus, if you read through the Gospels, seems to prioritize the poor and the outcast. And I think if you tie it to these Isaiah hopes, it's because it's the poor who are most impacted by the effects of the fall and evil in this world. It is the poor, even today, it is the poor who are disproportionately impacted by the fall. They're the ones who most often disproportionately live outside of the rule of law, whose houses are in the floodplains, who lack schools or medical care, quality food, who are exploited by evil and powerful people. Jesus has deep love and concern for those most affected by the curse and the fall, the sick and the possessed, the outcast and the sinner, all the poor and powerless. And of course, it's also um, a, a parallel a metaphor for what Jesus does for all people, that he comes for those who recognize their spiritual poverty and brokenness. In the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, the persecuted and suffering, and he means that literally, those who are mourning, those who are poor, those who are meek, those who are persecuted, but he also means that spiritually. Those who acknowledge and admit that they have nothing and bring nothing spiritually or morally to God. That's what it means to have spiritual poverty. To admit that you have nothing and bring nothing, spiritually or morally. Do you believe that? If you did, if you did believe that you have nothing spiritually or morally to bring, then you would not care about getting credit. You would not fear embarrassment or failure. You would not be so determined to win or get your way. You would not need to be right all the time. Because you have nothing to gain, nothing to prove, you admit your poverty. The problem is we are from the West, and more specifically Northern Virginia, D.C. And basically all of us like to admit that we're relatively good people. You know, I'm a relatively good guy. I'm capable. We take pride in keeping our you know, junk together. But the view that you're a relatively good person makes no sense in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, a resume is your list of all the things that you've, uh, you know, your, your career, basically. When you're trying to get a new job, you turn in a resume. A CV is a Britishism for the same thing, but it's actually a Latinism. It's CV is curriculum vitae, which means a course of life. So a CV or resume are similar, but a CV is, is technically more comprehensive. 
It's all of your honors and your giftings, all of your academic achievements, all of your career achievements, all the things you've done, all your skills, your CV. All of us are building a spiritual CV. We build a curriculum vitae, a resume, based on our moral record, or our achievements, or our wealth, or how good our kids behave, or our career. The gospel says, stop building a resume for God. In Jesus' kingdom, your amazing CV is worthless. It's like going to buy a car with a wad of Monopoly money. It gets you nowhere. Jesus defines what matters. In this slightly opaque little section here in chapter 11, once the disciples of John leave, Jesus says in verse 7, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John the Baptist. And he says to them, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What did you go out to see? A reed? You know, the, the several commentators note that um, Jesus is, is using that word reed on purpose because it was the symbol of King Herod, John the Baptist's enemy. The coins that King Herod had printed had his symbol on them. It wasn't an eagle. It was a reed, a Galilean reed, like in the swamps. Basically, he's referring to Herod. What did you go out to see? A king like Herod? Is that what you went out in the wilderness to see? You went by the Jordan River because you heard about John the Baptist, but you went to go see somebody like King Herod, a fake king, a pseudo-king who kind of lords his authority over you, who is a traitor with the Romans. So he's in the middle of all of this. He is critiquing King Herod in a very wise and you know, kind of uh, under-the-radar uh, under sort of way. But in the process, he's also affirming John and John's ministry. John is the great last prophet. Malachi, the Jewish people believed, was the last of the prophets, and then God went silent for centuries. And Malachi in Malachi 3, 1 says, there will be a messenger of the covenant, a messenger who will come and prepare the way for God's arrival. And Jesus is saying, yes, John is that one. He is the greatest of the prophets because of this. And yet, and yet, in the kingdom of God, even the least disciple is not less than John the Baptist because the kingdom of God is an upside-down sort of kingdom. Jesus overthrows his culture's values. He's establishing and leading an upside-down kingdom in which position and status and power and religiousness no longer matter but humility and forgiveness and childlike faith do. 
Jesus goes around and, and offends all the people who matter. He challenges the wealthy, ignores the powerful, and condemns the religious. Think about that. In an honor and shame culture, in a status-based culture, in a religious-based culture, Jesus challenges and ignores the most powerful. And he rebukes the most religious. And instead, he eats with tax collectors and prostitutes. He touches the leper. And he cares about a demon-possessed Gentile. All the things you should not do. Jesus says, in my kingdom, the first will be last and the last first. Blessed are you if you suffer, if you're humiliated in a culture that wanted nothing to do with humiliation. The way to live in my kingdom is to die. Die to self. And give your life to me, for me, and find true life. Jesus' kingdom is a gospel of grace. And that means, in this upside-down kingdom, mature disciples are not marked by what they know or how good they live, but by their humility and generosity with others. Extending grace, quick to forgive, not keeping a tally of hurts and wrongs done against you, not striving to be noticed or first. Jesus is saying to John, probably not what he wanted to hear, I know you're in prison, but the sick are being healed. And the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus is calling John and every disciple to have a kingdom mindset. That our aim And our aim here at Christ Church Vienna is the spread of God's kingdom. Not Christ Church Vienna's kingdom. Not Johnny's kingdom. Certainly not your kingdom. It doesn't matter if God's kingdom is advancing, it doesn't matter who gets credit. Or even if this church survives. We are not competing to win. It matters that God's kingdom advances, that lives are transformed, that Jesus is lifted up and known. That's what matters. Jesus himself calls to you. And so if you can identify with the struggling, with John in prison, with the sick, the outcast, the hopeless. Remember that that's where Jesus' heart lies. That's where God's heart lies. So much so that he suffered. He was rejected. He was hated and he died that you might know the fullness of his love. And if instead you find it hard to believe, if you want to have faith but you struggle with doubts, it is okay. Just don't, don't think your doubts disqualify you. If you are skeptical, that's okay. Just don't sit in your cynicism. Remember that we all are believers in something. 
Atheism is just as much an unprovable faith leap as Christianity. Instead, keep searching, keep asking, and maybe even keep going to Jesus. And ask, are you the one? Let's pray. God, our Father, you and your loving mercy sent Jesus not to show us how to be good people, but to reveal to us the depth of our need for you, to live and suffer and die in a fallen and broken world, to bring in a kingdom that is not at all like our kingdoms, and to offer us the hope of life even now. Strengthen us, Lord, who struggle and doubt, who suffer and are weak, and let us know and see your love and goodness and truth. In Jesus' name, amen.